0: So I have a question for you as we begin today, and that is, can you, is it possible to please God? Is it possible to please God? And depending on your level of church involvement, you may find that to be a rhetorical question, like the answer is obviously yes. Depending on your background, maybe you think it's an impossible question to even answer because how do I even know? Um, it's possible that if you grew up in a church that was, uh, very legalistic or very much in tune with the idea of making it very much clear that we uh, have nothing to offer God, but we are only ever going to be, you know, sinners in hopes of just a Savior would somehow just accept and rescue us just in the brokenness that we are, maybe you would say the answer is no. Maybe perhaps if you grew up in an environment where uh, maybe your dad or your mom, like there was never enough that you could do or uh, good enough grades that you can earn, uh, to ever have this, you know, to ever feel like you please them, maybe you transfer that onto your Heavenly Father and think, you know, maybe God loves me and God accepts me and God redeems me, but I don't know if I could really wrap my mind around the fact that God actually likes me or that I, my life could please him. I think it's an interesting question because it, it speaks to the character of God but it also speaks to the nature of the relationship that we can have with him. Because if we believe it's possible to please God, that you could live a life in in such a way that brings a smile to the face of God, it affects then that relationship and who we are and how we relate to him. Otherwise, we find ourselves continuing just to either go through the motions or believing that the distance between us and him, maybe the distance between me and hell has been closed or the distance between me and heaven has been opened, but not the distance between me and my God. We're inside of a study in the book of First Thessalonians, and uh, we're in week number four now, and we're, we've kind of just journeyed through section by section. And last week, we talked about the fact that this was a letter that was written to a church that was in the middle of persecution, uh, a young church, you know, just 20-some years after the resurrection. Uh, yet localized. There were periods of persecution where uh, there was a cost to be paid for putting your hope in Jesus Christ, because this new gospel seemed to be at odds with Judaism and at odds with uh, the paganism of the Roman Empire, and so Christians were being mistreated and at times even physically harmed at this point in the time of human history because of their faith. And so we ended last week, uh, and Bill asked the question, are we going to live Um, controlled by the chaos, and the chaos could be the summary of anything around us, any level of persecution or hardship or difficulty or whatever, you know, the the cost is for us or the messiness is for us to be a Christian. Are we going to live controlled by the chaos or captivated by the cross? And when we live captivated by the cross, it doesn't mean that everything is easy, but it means that there is a reorientation of our lives according to the things that God has done for us and that he wants to do in us. And so we come back to the question then as we live as people in the middle of chaos, but yet hoping to live lives that are captivated by the cross, is it possible to please God? Is it possible to live in such a way that your life brings a smile to the face of your heavenly Father? In the book of Zephaniah, which is one of the minor prophets tucked in towards the end of your Old Testament, There's a phrase there that probably to most of us, you know, 21st century people kind of seems a little bit uncomfortable to read, but it says, the Lord will take great delight in you. He will rejoice over you with singing and with song and with dancing. I don't usually think about God responding to my life that way. Again, it's so easy to think that God just loves me and redeems me and somehow tolerates me, but the fact that God would actually like me or rejoice over my life seems a bit much. In fact, I, I thought about this, and in the early days of my relationship with Rachel, we kind of did the long-distance thing because we were at school, and then I would come home to work in the summer, and she would come home to work, or Christmas break, and so when we would see each other a- after not being together for a while, there would be great rejoicing, and, and, and I would... I would dance circles. Nah, no, I, I was kidding. But there was great rejoicing that, that there was, you know, just a joy inside of that moment. And then, you know, we got married and we were around each other all the time. And, you know, she doesn't dance circles around the house anymore when I come home, but that's okay. <laughs> then we had kids. And this is like the new definition of this. And so if I was away for a couple of days and the kids were young, I would walk in, there would be daddy's home and they would run around the house and there'd be excitement because daddy was home. And Eli and Isaac are in the back, you've already seen Caleb, like they don't really run around the house and rejoice and dance anymore. In fact, I think the only person who rejoices and dances and just bursts in jubilation when I come home anymore is the dog. And so uh, Le- Lexi still will run around the house and she'll be so excited that we come home, especially after we've been away. But I, I think about that and we don't usually give God that kind of emotional or affection credit because we know that God is holy, we know that God is other than us, we know that he redeemed us, but the fact that he would actually take an interest in our lives and like us and delight in us sometimes makes us feel a bit uncomfortable. So we're going to read for a little bit out of uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As for other matters, now, your transition, or your translation might say, finally, or in addition, this is the part inside of the letter where Paul begins to transition to some closing thoughts and some practical thoughts. Most of the time when Paul writes, say, in the book of Philippians or the book of Ephesians, there's always a transition that usually moves from kind of theology to practice. And so this is that point inside of First Thessalonians. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how, you how to live in order to please God. So Paul's saying, we've already talked about this. We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact, you are living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So he's saying, we told you about this. You've been doing it. Now keep doing it more and more. We told you how to live, we gave you instructions of what it meant to be, you know, a Christian and put your faith in Jesus, and you've been doing it, but now we just want you to do it more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now this word sanctified is to be made holy, to be set apart, that there could be something inside of you that the character of God begins to intersect with your character. That the heart of God could become your heart. Now, different, you know, denominations down through history have talked about what does that look like. Is that just the sanctification that inside of salvation that you are just set apart now belonging to God? Or can it actually be that there is a renovation of your character in Christ? But he says, we've told you about this. We've given you instructions of how to live so that you should be sanctified. And so I think Paul here has in mind that there is something tangible. There's not just a change in position once we were not with God, now we are with God. Once we were not saved, now we are saved. But Paul seems to be pointing to that there is a qualitative difference that takes place in the heart of the believer in Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, and then he tells them what this looks like, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human, but God, the very God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody." Now, this is an interesting passage, and we would almost think that it's kind of two separate things, because on the one hand, he seems to be talking about uh, character things, moral things, purity-based things. He said, you know, it's, we've, we've told you how to live, that you could live a life in such a way that pleases God, and the way you do that is that you are made holy, that you are sanctified by his Holy Spirit, and that even as we've taught you this and we continue to te- teach this, we want you to do it and to do it more and more. That you should be set apart, that you can be holy, that you can live in such a way that pleases God. And here's two ways that we want to again remind you, we've told you this before, four different times inside of this section, he said, you know, or as we told you, or as you heard before, we've gone over this and over this, but let me just tell you again, this is what it looks like to live a holy life. Avoid sexual immorality and love one another. That's the basic summary of what he just said, and in fact, we could probably boil it down even a little bit bit further into two commands of what we've been instructed to do, that you've been, you know, instructed to invite Jesus uh, to begin to construct your identity and your morality, and that you can invite Jesus to teach you how to better love the people around you. And he said, this is what it looks like, And, and so... Again, three times uh, inside of this passage and in the verses that follow, he talks about being holy. In the book of First Peter, the first chapter, he actually quotes, uh, Peter does, the book of Leviticus, that God wants you to be holy because he is holy, that his character can become your character, not in the same way that you are sinless and perfect, not, you know, that you are almighty, you, you know, like God is and all-knowing and all-powerful. But that inside of the, the finitude, you know, the finiteness of who we are, the infinite resources of God could come to take up residence in us and to help us to become more like Jesus day by day. Jesus said it this way. I can summarize your entire Old Testament with one command. And it was really two, but it was kind of 1A and 1B. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, mind and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said we can look at the entire Old Testament and summarize it down into one phrase. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Meaning that you place God first inside of your life. And and what you think about and what you do and and how you orient your schedule and how you live. That God takes center stage inside of the construct of your life. And you love people. And so Jesus says the same thing that Paul does here. Do you want to know what it looks like to be made holy? Place God first and foremost inside of your life and love people. To invite Jesus to construct my identity and my morality. And to invite Jesus to direct me how to best love the people around me. That's what the Christian life boils down to. And again, this summer we talked through the Ten Commandments. And so it's important that you don't lie and it's important that you don't steal. And, you know, we could read other, you know, verses and, and truth inside of Scripture. And it's all good and and it's all important, but it all boils down to that when Jesus comes in to take up residence inside of your life, you are now a new person sealed in him and adopted by him and your life can bring a smile to the face of God. Not because you've done enough good things that God says, okay, I could be happy with her, I could be happy with him. But because as his child we love to see it when our children grow and develop and take steps forward and to know that there is something that is being created in them and fostered in them, that there's a transformation inside of who they are, that as they grow in years, they don't remain in the same place. And so he says, avoid sexuality and, and learn how to love other people. Let's talk about these just for a couple of minutes. I think... Uh, Bill got off easy last week, he got to talk about persecution, I get to talk about sex for a couple of minutes, but um, don't worry, we're not going to do that, you know, very long. I think the reason that inside of the New Testament this comes back to over and over again is because this becomes one of the, the primary areas inside of our lives of where it looks like for the transforming touch of the gospel to make a difference inside the heart and inside the life and inside the character of an individual. The most important things inside of your life are best lived out when they're exclusive. If you want to best use your time, there are certain people and there are certain activities that don't get your time and there are other people and other activities that you should be giving more time to. If you want to best utilize your money and whether you have this much money or this much money or this much money, um, you think about what things are important and certain things or activities don't get my money and certain things get my money because, well, Jesus said it, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. The most important things inside of your life demand an element of exclusivity. And William Barclay said that it's something, you know, in regard to human sexuality, that every culture before Jesus and since Jesus has said, if you want to best live out your rights... And your privileges as a human being is you get to do whatever you want with whoever you want, whatever you want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And let's face it, some cultures have even left off that last phrase. Because who cares if it hurts as long as I can do what I want, what I want with whoever I want. There's an element of power and control inside of that. And the gospel comes along and says, there is something about you, and, and this is what Paul says to the Corinthian church, you are not your own, you've been bought with a price therefore glorified God even in your bodies. Now, I don't know how many of you, but if you're under the age of 40 or so, and I don't want to, you know, be discriminatory there, but just as I kind of surveyed the landscape, there is one of the attacks leveled against the church currently is this idea of purity culture, that the church has, you know, kind of placed the emphasis in the wrong spot And for too many years, we've said, this is what you can do and you can't do. And these are the things that God likes and these are the things that God hates. and And if you do this, you're in. And if you don't do this, you're not in. And we've gotten things backwards because we've tried to say, if you want God to love you and accept you, then make sure you do X, Y, and Z and you don't do X, Y, and Z. That was never the intention. The intention was that if Jesus comes to take up residence inside of your life and begins to renovate your character... There are things that shift then, not as a to-do list, but because God wants to refine and renovate who we are. And so there's an ex- exclusivity to your relationships and what you allow yourself to be a part of and what, what things you'll allow to be a part of you. Not because I'm trying to earn the, you know, the approval of God, but because God knows what's best for me. And here's how I know that to be true, is even if you and I were to have an individual conversation, you would say, if you really understood my background, you would know why I did this and why I did that. You would know why it is that that I feel okay that I can look at this or look at that or engage in this or engage in that. And you may be able to give me a compelling reason for where you are personally. But I guarantee you, when we begin to talk about society as a whole, or your kids or your grandkids, There is something within us that is old-fashioned or very biblically true when we think about the society we want to be a part of or the next generation that we come after us. Because even though maybe you felt God's presence with you and God's healing from a painful divorce that you've gone through, I've never sat with a divorced person that says, you know what I hope for my kids is that eventually they can go through this also. You see, when we think about the next generation, we want something for them that maybe even for ourselves we've decided is unattainable or impossible or impractical. You want to work for a boss who isn't spending most of his day looking at images on the computer that, that demean women. You may think it's okay, you know, for you or or, or for you know somebody in, in your relationship, you know, knowing what they've gone through and it's okay and it's not that bad. But I guarantee you when you think about society as a whole, or you think about the next generation, we wished more people lived according to the values we find in Scripture. So Paul says, I want you to live in such a way that pleases God, and we've talked about it, we're going to continue to talk about it. And you've been doing it, but you need to do it more and more. Because there is always a growing edge to your faith and to your development in Christ. And then he says, I want you to love." And you do this, the first he says is, let your life speak. Let your life do the talking. And when he talks about living a quiet life, he's not saying to live a passive life or live a life that doesn't make an impact. What he's saying is live a life that doesn't scream, it's all about me. Live in in such a way that other people don't necessarily see and celebrate you but can see God living and working through you. And then that phrase that's in there, he says, uh, to mind your own business. If you ever wondered whether or not that was scripture, that, that comes right out of scripture, mind your own business. So the next time you're talking to somebody, you could say, mind your own business, 1st Thessalonians 4, and, and, and they can't get mad because all you're doing is quoting scripture. Cleanliness is next to godliness, not in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves, not in the Bible. But mind your own business, it's a Bible verse. Cut it out, put it on your mirror, you know, send it in a greeting card to somebody, you you could do that. But I think, again, what he's saying is, well, again, Jesus said it this way, be careful that you don't point out the speck in your neighbor's eye and ignore the log that's in your own eye. It becomes so easy to notice what somebody else should be doing or shouldn't be doing. And explain away where I am. It can be so easy to say that the problem is if he would only do this, if she would only do this, things would be better, and ignore the fact that I also could be doing a few things about the situation. So this past week on Wednesday night, uh, I'm leading a group that's talking about family and, and the families that we want to be a part of, and and there were three words that I came across that I thought really fit into today. The ideal, the real, and the gap. The ideal are the standards that God has for us. Our tendency is to either rationalize or explain away or say that that's just in there just, just for show, and we can never attain it. But I want to invite you to don't lose sight of the ideal that God lifts up for us. But at the same time, we need to wrestle with where we actually are inside of whatever topic it is we're talking about. And then to do something about it, to actually notice the gap that's there. And so I want to add just another word to each of these. Uh, I think it, it's crucial for us to embrace the ideal, to own or to identify, to actually name it, where we are and to step in the gap. Step right into the place where God says this, I'm living like this, and what would it look like to do something about it? Maybe not fix it, maybe not solve it, maybe it's something I don't even know what the first step is, but I'm willing to just... Step into the gap between what God wants for me and where it is that I'm currently living. Now, the best analogy I have for this uh, is the idea of renovation. And so I married a girl whose dad is a contractor. And so uh, even when we were first married, Rachel had better tools than me. Rachel had more tools than me. Uh, I have never been a handy person, but I'm glad that Rachel and now Eli are. And so from time to time, we watch HGTV especially when my in-laws are in town, because again, they like to watch that. And what I'm captivated by is not just the before and after, but the journey it takes to get there and the process that happens. There's something about renovation of taking something from where it is to what it can be. And so today, as we leave, I want to give you a little booklet. And uh, this has been, you know, given out probably millions of times across the world. It's a little uh, pamphlet. It's this one's only 16 pages long. I think the one I have in my office is like 18 pages long. Um, it's not the prettiest version, but it's the cheapest. And so if I'm giving you a free gift, you can't complain. Uh, I have seen prettier versions of this, but uh, this one's free to you. I want you to take one, one of these and look at it. And it goes through this idea. Robert Boyd Munger was a Presbyterian pastor, and I think this was written in like 1956. And it goes through this idea of like, Jesus coming to make his home in our hearts. And we're familiar with that language, like, you know, that I invited Jesus to come in to my heart. Uh, you know, it's kind of our, you know, VBS prayer, you know, that we made it as kids. But Robert Boyd Munger says that what would it look like if we really opened up our hearts for Jesus to come and take up residence in? And this is what he says. He said, after Christ entered my heart, in the joy of that newfound relationship, I said to him, Lord, I want this heart of mine to be yours. I want you to settle down here and make yourself fully at home. I want you to use it as your own. And so what, what Munger does throughout the book is he takes, you know, Jesus goes from room to room inside of his life, from the study to the living room to the dining room where he begins to talk about his affections and the things that really fuel him to the workroom where he looks at what it would be to be effective. Tool for God inside of his kingdom, he makes his way through various rooms and he comes to the bedroom where where Jesus wants to transform even the most intimate of relationships inside of his life and then the thing I like at the end is there's one final thing that he talks about, which is the hall closet and he said, at this point he had given Jesus access to every room inside of the house, and Jesus said to him one day there's a stench coming from the second floor. And he said, the only thing left, Lord, is a little closet there in the corner, and it's just about a a two-by-four room. And he says, will you give me access to it? And he said, well, well, it's locked, and I don't know where the key is, and I I don't know if I can or if I want to. And Munger says at that point that it actually irritated me, it angered me to think about I've given Jesus access to the entire rest of the house. And now he wants this closet also. But he said, Christ said to him that there's a stench coming from there. And you've not opened it for at least two years. And there there are some things in there that are rotting and that are polluting your house. There's some things from your past that you haven't looked at. There are some things you'd rather not give your attention to that need to be cleaned up. And Munger says that, I I told him inside of that moment, I don't have the strength to do it, but if you'll clean it out, here's the key. And he said that's what he did. He opened and he cleaned it out, and he said it didn't take very long, but the end result was he found that God had full access to every room inside of his life. The final little section of the book, he talks about transferring the deed. He said eventually it wasn't enough just to invite Jesus over for dinner or invite Jesus to spend the night in the guest room or even to ask Jesus to be a permanent residence, resident inside of the house. But what would it look like to actually give the keys and sign over the deed that my heart is yours, my life is yours? What sanctification is about is not you measuring up to God or earning the approval of God. But I think when we say to Jesus, you can have the keys, I'm going to sign over the, the deed, you are not just a guest in this house, but my house and my home are yours. That brings a smile to the face of God. To live a life that pleases God means that we, you don't shut out Jesus from any room inside of your house. But in fact, you give him ownership and you give him control. Sanctification and holiness means that, Jesus, you can come and inhabit every part and every aspect of who I am. And some of that is going to need major changes. And some of that just means there's somebody else calling the shots of what's going on but it's yours. So my question for you today is, have you ever signed over the deed? I suspect if you're in church, you've invited Jesus over for dinner a couple times or two. I expect if you're in church, maybe you've even invited him to take up permanent residence. But have you ever signed over the deed of your heart and your life to the one who best knows it and who can best rehab and clean up the mess that we've made of it. And then I think the second question is this, what's he currently working on? And I know that's a difficult question, but I think sometimes we can go through the motions. I've been a Christian now for about 30 years. We can go through the motions to think, all right, Jesus has already, you know, he's cleaned up this room, he's moved this wall, he's kind of renovated things, everything looks pretty good, and now we're just on autopilot. But I know and you know that there are still things inside of my life that don't resemble the character and the heart of my God. I know and you know that there are things inside of my life that are still under construction if I'll allow them to be. And so what's he currently working on inside of your life? And if he's working on it, he's faithful and we can trust him with it. Let's pray together. God, we invite you to continue to work inside of our lives. Lord Jesus, today we want to make sure even that as we leave this place that we've not simply just invited you to come as a guest. But Lord, maybe there's an opportunity to hand over the keys And the sign over the deed. That you can be the one who takes up ownership of all that we are and all that we have and of who we are. God, we thank you today that our lives can bring a smile to your face. Not because of how great we are, but because you've made us, you've redeemed us. And you have a plan and a purpose for us when we place our hand in your hand. So God, even as we conclude our time together, we pray that you would come uh, and meet us here. Inside of this time, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.